morning. Uh, in 1996, there was a movie released, and I got to talk about it because it's February. February is Relationship Month, right? And so we're doing a new series, and there was a, a particular romantic comedy movie about relationships that I don't know why has always stuck with me. My staff makes fun of me because they say I quote it. Colton's like, you always quote that movie. Uh, and there's two parts to it I always quote. I don't remember anything about the movie, but the movie was Jerry Maguire. Anybody seen Jerry Maguire? A couple of people. Any? It, uh, 96, I can't even believe I remember the movie, right? There's one part where, uh, that I always quote where Tom Cruise is on the phone with Cuba Gooding Jr. And uh, he's screaming on the phone, help me, help you. You guys remember that part? Uh, I quote that one. I don't know why I, I quote that line. I remember that line. But there's one other scene that I remember. Um, and that's when there's relationship trouble between Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger. And Renee Zellweger's in the, uh, in the living room with a whole bunch of other ladies bickering and complaining about men in their lives, right? And Tom Cruise walks in the room. How many of you guys remember this that's seen the movie? Yeah, a few of you guys, right? Uh, and uh, the reason you remember is because the, it's, the, it's the moment that you all started crying, right? Uh, and and there, there's this intense moment, and then Tom Cruise just like, breaks through the t- intensity in the room with all these women that are sitting there judging him. And he's like, looks at Renee Zellweger, he's like, you complete me. And all the women just melt and they're like, oh. And the whole tone of the room changes. I think what, uh, what was being articulated in that moment in that movie is uh, something that is a cultural belief uh, that we just grow up with in the West, that we assume and think that there is somebody out there that is going to complete us. It's like our whole life is, a puzzle, is one giant puzzle. And you can imagine if you got like a 500,000 piece puzzle and you got that box and you put together all the pieces in that box and you found out there was only 999 pieces in that thousand piece puzzle, how frustrated would you be? You'd be like, I need to find that missing piece that's going to complete my puzzle. And for many of us, we think that missing piece is another person. We think that missing piece that's going to complete our lives is that other person. And we might have 999 other pieces in place and our life is going really, really well, but we just feel incomplete without that last piece. And now the Bible is a pretty honest book. The Bible doesn't uh, pull any punches actually when it comes to relationships Uh, And the Bible is pretty honest with the fact that it is really, really difficult to be in a lifelong relationship and marriage with somebody else. The Bible is also pretty honest to say it's really, really difficult not to be in a lifelong relationship with somebody else. And outside of the church, there's kind of like this mentality that uh, this lifelong monogamous relationship is bad and you should unhitch yourself from that expectation and you know, you should have multiple partners and live life, and that's the path to true freedom. Well, the Bible actually speaks against that and says that's actually not the true way to happiness. But then in conservative circles and Christian circles, we kind of go the opposite way, and we think, well, my life will be complete when I find that other person. And the Bible also speaks against that and says, if you base your life on that, you will be sorely disappointed. And so the Bible critiques actually both of those postures And many of us don't realize that. And so this morning, I want to take a very, very high level view of the life of Jacob. And this is found in the book of Genesis. It's it's a long 
story. It's, a, it's an amazing story. In fact, that whole story of Jacob's life could be a whole sermon series in and of itself, but we're going to kind of look at it from a very, very high level. And uh, we'll see that even though Jacob lived 4,000 years ago, the things that were going on in Jacob's heart and in his life are just as relevant 4,000 years later to us. That there's some things about human nature the human experience of living life, the human experience of growing up in a family, of having relationships that has been universal for all time. And so to understand the story of Jacob, we need to understand a couple of things first. We need to understand that Jacob comes from a family with whom there was an incredible promise given, that there was a special family that was chosen by God, and that the special family was actually going to be used through God through history, to change the world. We have to understand that first. The second thing we have to understand is that Jacob, even though this this family was special, this family was called, this family had a purpose from the very, very beginning, this family was dysfunctional. How many of you guys come from a dysfunctional family? Liars, put your hands up. If you are in this room and you have a mom and dad, put your hand up. You come from a dysfunctional, I hate to tell you, you come from a dysfunctional family. And if you don't realize it, at some point you will. Uh, and that's why many of us end up in therapy, because we have to think, okay, how do I unpack my own family? My kids come from a dysfunctional family. It's true of all of us. So Jacob comes from a dysfunctional family, even though this family was called. So Abraham, uh, Jacob's grandfather, was actually called by God. God met, Jacob, or God met Abraham, and Abraham uh, was told by God that you are going to actually be the beginning of something significant through history. You see the misery, the cruelty, the the pain, the sin, the brokenness in the world. Well, I'm going to solve and answer that problem, and I'm going to do it through you. You are going to uh, bear a seed, and that seed is going to go from generation to generation, and eventually there's going to be a Messiah that will be born. This is Jesus, and then Jesus is going to change the world. Uh, And so Abraham knew that he was called by God. He knew that God was going to use his kids and his kids' kids and his kids' kids to do something significant in the world. There's going to be a Messiah, the seed, through his seeds, through his family line. Except there was a problem. They couldn't get pregnant. And so if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, Abraham didn't get pregnant, even though God had promised him something until he was 100 years old. That's a whole other story. So uh, that's just the background. 100 years old, the guy has a... Kid, can you imagine? Uh, can you? Uh, I can't imagine. So, uh, so Abraham has a kid, and this this kid carries with him a special destiny because he uh, he was the promise of God, and his boy's name was Isaac. And we see suffering and struggle right away because Abraham, like I said, couldn't have a kid, and so they're wrestling through that with God. How do they figure out what God is doing in their lives in light of the fact that they can't have a kid? And so when Isaac grew up, he ended up marrying Rebecca. And when she was pregnant, uh, there was toil already in her womb. And there was two brothers that were destined not to get along. And God sent a prophecy to Isaac saying, the elder will serve the younger. Which was very blasphemous in this culture because the elder had all the responsibility. The elder was the one that would carry on the inheritance, the family name, and particularly in light of the promise that God had given Abraham that he was going to do something through Abraham, through his descendants, the assumption would be that the oldest male in that family would be the one through whom God would change the world. And God says to Isaac, this is not going to be the case. The elder is going to serve the younger and the 
the younger one is going to be the one I'm going to actually use to bring about that seed, the messianic seed, uh, to come into fulfillment. And so there was Jacob and there was Esau. Esau was the older one. Jacob was the younger one. Uh, And so they come out and they were at odds from the very, very beginning. Uh, And what Isaac does is, this is significant, because Isaac actually ignores what God tells him, that God said that Jacob is the favored one in whom I'm going to do something, and Isaac sets his heart on Esau. Isaac clearly loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. In fact, it says right there in the text, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so Esau is rebelling against God, and he says, my oldest is Esau. I love Esau. And he's putting his heart and affection towards Esau in a way that he wasn't towards Jacob. In the same way, Rebecca actually starts to overcompensate for that and gives her love and affection to Esau at the expense, to Jacob at the expense of Esau. And so there's this tug of war that ends up happening in this family of four between Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebecca. And the kids in the situation are spoiled because of it. Esau grows up strong-willed, with no self-control. He is very proud. He's been coddled his whole life by his dad. And so that changes who he becomes as he's growing up. And then Jacob actually grows up and he's a deceiver and he's a liar and he's learned to manipulate because he never had the affection of his father. This is God's chosen family, by the way. Uh, So they grow up. Jacob was a shepherd. Esau was a hunter Uh, and Esau wanted to give the inheritance, the family blessing to Esau. Jacob didn't want that, and he wanted to deceive. And so his father is old, his father's growing blind, and he's coming to the end of his life, and he said, Esau, it's time for me to give you the blessing. Can you go out and hunt, you know, my favorite game and make a meal for me because he loved to, Esau loved to eat meat. And so so Isaac loved to eat meat. So Esau goes off, and as he's hunting, Rebecca goes to Jacob, and she Uh, to Jacob and says, this is your chance to steal the family blessing, the inheritance. And so he dresses up like Esau. He puts, you know, he he had smooth skin and Esau was hairy. So he puts on some some animal skin and makes himself look hairy. He cooks the food. Uh, He puts on Esau's clothes. He pretends to be somebody that he isn't. And he shows up in front of his blind father and said, dad, it's time for the family blessing. Here's your meal. And Esau, or Isaac feels like this is a little bit suspicious uh, but because Jacob was wearing Esau's clothes, he smells like, ah, you smell like Esau. He touches him. He's like, you feel like Esau. Okay, here's the family blessing. And so Isaac gives the family best blessing to Jacob while Esau's out. Well, Esau returns, finds out what is happening, and is furious and vows that he's going to kill his brother Jacob for stealing the family blessing, for stealing his inheritance. And so Jacob flees. Jacob flees and he runs away, never to see his father and mother again. And so he runs to the other side of the world, as he knew it, the other side of the fertile crescent, crescent in the Middle East there. And as he goes to his uh, mom's family side and his uncle Laban is there. Uh, and so this is where the story starts to get really, really interesting. Uh, and there's two parts of the story that we're going to kind of break down. There's Laban's plot. We're going to talk about that first. And then there's Leah's lot. So keep those two in mind. Laban's plot and Leah's lot. So uh, Laban starts to unfold this plot. So, so Jacob shows up uh, and, uh, and J- Jacob meets Laban. 
and Jacob is a successful shepherd, and Laban hires uh, Jacob to work for him. And in Genesis 29, 14, 15, it says, After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because your relative mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And so he starts to employ uh, Jacob. And so they're having this conversation, this contract. Uh, Jacob, what do you want to get paid for your work? And now Jacob has an idea. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. And so here's Jacob's idea. Jacob would like to marry Rachel. Um, And so Laban sees an opportunity here. Now, as we're going to see, Laban is himself a deceiver, a manipulator, and Jacob's met his match. And so in this negotiation, Jacob says, I really like Rachel. And Laban's like, I got a couple of problems. My first problem is I don't have enough money because he likes to have money. Uh, You know how much money is enough money? Not enough. Laban's wanting more money. He says, here's my opportunity to make some more money off Jacob. So uh, I'm going to hire you. Uh, I can see that you're very skilled and you are my opportunity to actually grow my business. Uh, This is problem one you're going to help me with. Problem number two is what? Well, problem number two is that Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Here's problem number two. I mean, some people read this and they think, well, you know, Leah didn't have good eyesight. Uh, You know, she couldn't see as clearly. But the text doesn't say Leah had weak eyes and Rachel had 20-20 vision. That's not what it's saying. Okay, the text says that Leah had weak eyes and Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. In the context, we know that what it's actually saying is that Leah, there was something that was not very lovely about her appearance. There was something about her eyes you know, whether she was cross-eyed or there was something else that was going on in her eyes that made her, uh, you know, unwanted. And so Laban had another problem. It's like, my older daughter's not married. There's no guys knocking on the door to marry Leah. Uh, I've got to find a way to get rid of Leah. Now I've got a chance to get rid of Leah, get her married off, and to make some money. And here's Jacob, who is awestruck with Rachel. Now, The word lovely, figure, and beautiful, just so you guys know, in the Hebrew language is boom, chickle, wah, wah. That's that's what the original Hebrew says. It's she had the form, she had the beauty. It was was like an axe commercial all over again. Um, So Jacob was just, you know, he wanted to be with Rachel. but Laban had a problem because Leah, he didn't think, was ever going to get married off. So Leah grew up in the shadow of Rachel. She grew up in the shadow of this beautiful girl who was beautiful, had the figure. She had something that she didn't like about herself that other guys apparently didn't like about her either. Uh, and so we go back to Laban. So Laban says to Jacob, you know, what wages can I pay you? Probably knowing full well really what Jacob wanted. Jacob says, Give me Rachel. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. 
So Jacob offered seven years worth of wages for Rachel. And just so you know, this was four times, four times the, the going rate for a bride at that time and in that culture. Four times the cost of a typical bride. Jacob was so lovestruck, he was willing to do anything to be with Rachel. And Laban saw how lovesick Jacob was, and he decided to take advantage of his condition. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So Jacob works for seven years, seemed like only a few days. He was so lovestruck. And then it comes the time for the wedding feast. Uh, And the wedding feasts at that time were were a week long. It was a week-long celebration. And so he comes after seven years, goes to Jacob and says, or it goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Now, Hebrew scholars all agree that the phrasing that Jacob uses is, is really, really offensive. I mean, even today, if you think going to your future father-in-law and saying, give me your hand in marriage because I want to have sex with your daughter. How would that go over? This is what's happening. I served seven years. I've been waiting. My time's up. Give me your daughter. Give her to me now. So we see that Jacob is just overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for Rachel. It's just, it's consuming him. So why? Why why did this happen? Why is Jacob's life so empty? Why is he looking for so much longing? Why is his drive so much for Rachel? Well, you know, I believe that part of the reason why Jacob is driven the way he is, why he's deceptive, why he is, you know, has all of these lusts and passions that he's having trouble actually even managing is because he grew up in a world where his father withheld affection and love to him. His own dysfunctional family actually created the next chapter in his own story, which was a story also of dysfunction. Jacob believes that if, if I had her, if I had that thing that I can't have that is beautiful and that was actually part of my life, then that would fulfill this deep longing that I have. If I had her, then that is the missing piece in my puzzle. It would complete my life. All the longings of his heart, all the, his looking for meaning, for affirmation, for belonging, he put all of that into Rachel. And so he shows up to Laban and says, the time is here. Let's make it happen. My life's about to be complete. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And when evening came, he took his daughter, who? Leah. And brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to Leah, to her. And then when the morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years work. Isn't Laban lying? Well, not exactly. In fact, 
Laban's not lying. Laban is actually telling the truth to Jacob that it's not the custom. It's actually against the law for us to, for me to give you an older daughter when, or a younger daughter when I haven't even married my older daughter. So if you take my older daughter, then you can marry my younger daughter. And we, and we think, and Jacob thinks, well, isn't that go back on what, what Laban said? No. Remember, Laban is a deceiver. He's a manipulator. What did Laban actually say? Go back in the story. When, J- when Jacob asked for Rachel's hand in marriage, he said, yeah, you know, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me and work for me. He didn't say yes. He didn't give the full condition. He actually allowed Jacob to see what Jacob wanted to see. He allowed Jacob to hear what Jacob wanted to hear. And when we become so obsessed and infatuated with someone or something, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can begin to see everything in your life and hear everything in your life through that lens, and that's all you can think about. The deceiver, Jacob, got deceived. Lovesick Jacob says, well, what do I do? And Laban says, I'll tell you what, you can marry Rachel too. Now that you've done the seven years, you can marry Rachel too. Uh, but after you marry Leah, and you're going to have to work for me for another seven years. How did Jacob not see this? How did Jacob not notice at the wedding that the bride was Leah? I mean, he was probably had a little bit too much to drink. It was probably late. It was probably dark. Uh, You know, all these things. But I think there's more going on in the text here. All those things are probably going on. But what's going on in the text here is the deception of the human heart. We can see what we want to see. We can want what we want to want. And we can believe and want something so badly that it distorts our vision and our ability to actually see clearly. For Jacob, Rachel wasn't just his wife, his future wife that he wanted and longed for. Rachel was his savior. Rachel was the person that was going to save him. This is why he was so vulnerable to Laban's deception. This is why He didn't realize he was marrying Leah. This is why he went seven years without ever putting the pieces together, even though he didn't actually have a clear contract and what this was all going to mean in the end. He only saw what he wanted to see, and he only had eyes for Rachel. And after he had spent that night with Rachel, the text says that in the morning it was Leah. And here's the truth we see in the story of the Bible and the story of Jacob's life, is that no matter what your Rachel is, no matter what the person is that you're longing for, no matter what the thing is that you long for, whatever you think is going to complete you, every single time you wake up in the morning, it's always Leah. With all due respect to Leah, we'll get to her in a second. What we see in the life of Jacob throughout throughout the scriptures is that when you put your hope, when you put your hopes, your dreams, your identity, your belonging in another human being, no matter who that human being is, no matter whoever your Rachel is, you will always wake up and realize it's Leah. In fact, the text literally says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Behold. It's almost like the text is telling us, in this moment, when the sun rose, And finally, Jacob started seeing clearly again. He realized it was Leah. 
And we can spend our lives chasing Rachel's, chasing people, chasing relationships, chasing things that we think are going to fulfill us, complete us, make us happy. But there will be a morning. There will be a time in your life and my life where we will behold, where we will come to see clearly that the thing we were longing for doesn't fulfill the longing that we have. Now, the Bible has a word for this. The word for it is idolatry. Uh, An idol is is anything, anyone that you can look at and say, you know, if I just have that thing, if I have that person, if I, if I gain that success, if I'm in that type of relationship, then my life will be complete. Then the puzzle is actually going to be completed. And there's many ways to describe this type of view on, on a certain relationship, but maybe the best word that we could use is worship because that's the language of idolatry. You know, when we say he worships the ground she walks on, we use that type of phrase, It can be literally true that we worship other people. And we often think idols are bad things. And they are bad because of what they do to us. But, you know, we don't typically make idols out of really, really terrible, horrible things. The, The better something is, the more tempting it is to make an idol out of it. The greater the good, the more likely we are to turn that thing into an idol. Idolatry. Now, C.S. Lewis actually has quite a lot to say on this in a number of different books. Um, And in one of his essays, he says this, The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not... I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones, best case scenario. There's something we've grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What is C.S. Lewis saying? What C.S. Lewis is saying is what the Bible is telling us, that in the morning it's always Leah, no matter what your longing is. In fact, Jim Carrey, yeah, I'm quoting Jim Carrey and C.S. Lewis. Jim Carrey said, I've often said that I wish people could realize that their dreams and wealth and fame, they could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame so that they could see that it's not where they're going to find their sense of completion. This is human history. So back to the story. Jacob wakes up in the morning, realizes it's Leah, realizes he's been deceived, and Laban says, got you, buddy. You should have read the fine print. Should have read the fine print. Uh, You're stuck with Leah, and if you want Rachel, it's going to be another seven years. And Jacob agreed to the terms again. So now Jacob, now Laban, you know, what a guy. He got 14 years of labor. Think how much money he made off of Jacob. Jacob ended up paying eight times the price of a bride to get the bride he actually wanted, Rachel. Jacob was out-deceived. And so Jacob did it. He finished the week with Leah, that week of the wedding. Laban then gave Rachel to him uh, as a deposit for the next seven years that he was going to work. And so you can imagine for Leah that she's married to Jacob for a week, and then a week later, 
her sister shows up on the scene, and Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Man, where have we read that phrase before? It's Esau. Isaac's love for Esau was greater than his love for Jacob. Jacob is repeating the same broken pattern that he experienced in his own family growing up. Now, Leah. Poor Leah. She's the other sister. She grew up her whole life in the shadow of Rachel. She finally gets married, and that lasted for about a week, and then Rachel shows up, and Jacob marries Rachel and gives his heart and affection to Rachel. Now, because of all this greed, because of her dad's greed, because of being around these deceiving men, we've got Laban, we've got Jacob, And they're kind of toiling and deceiving and manipulating. And in the middle of the story, we have Leah, who nobody seems to care about as being caught in this tug of war. You know, it probably would have been better if Laban would have just left her and not, and she didn't marry. I mean, at least she probably could have worked through that. She could have worked through this idea that, you know, there wasn't a guy for her. She could maybe try and figure out you know, what this life of singlehood must look like. But can you imagine the torture when you grew up in the shadow of your sister, Rachel? When you grow up thinking that, you know, nobody loves you, and then you marry a guy who actually doesn't love you, and he actually marries another woman, and then on top of that, the other woman was your sister that you grew up in the shadow of your whole life. Leah's like thrown into this type of relational hell and longing, and she is trying to figure out how to deal with this. And so when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, the remainder of this passage, the the remainder of the story, uh, this is what I love about the Bible. It's so honest. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. Where she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely, surely my husband love me now. You know what? The name Reuben means to see. She's in this marriage with a guy that doesn't love her, and she thinks, if I had a kid, that would actually bring my husband's affection to me. If I had a kid, he will finally see me. And so she names this kid. She bursts this kid with the intention of the this kid being used to gain her husband's affection. I'm going to name you Reuben because through you, my husband's going to see me. Then the Bible says she conceived again. You know, fill in the blanks. Jacob didn't see her even though she had a kid. And she named the next kid. She said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. And the name Simeon means to hear. So now she's on to Simeon, and she thinks, you know, I'm going to have another kid, my second kid. And the first kid didn't work out. My husband didn't see me. If I have another kid, perhaps he's going to hear me. Perhaps he's going to hear that I, my cry for love. And it didn't work. And then she conceived again. Now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And so she named him Levi, and the name Levi means to be attached. 
Now that I've given my husband three sons, he's finally going to attach himself to me. He's going to let go of Rachel. He's going to attach himself to me. Leah was trying to find happiness and identity and completion through Jacob. But because Jacob wasn't giving her what she was longing for, she started to project that onto her own kids. And she said, I'm going to use my own children to achieve the dreams and the longings that I have in my own life. And that didn't work. If I have these babies, my life is going to be complete. But instead, every single birth that she had pushed her further, further into this relational hell and this place of loneliness and desperation and realizing that there's nothing that is actually going to give me the longing that I have. But the Bible shows us, and it's pretty honest, that throughout our lives, we have a series of cosmic disappointments. In fact, this level of suffering and disappointment is the human experience, and it's been going on for 4,000 plus years. And it's a very sad story. This whole family tree, despite them being God's chosen family, uh, there's a lot of sad parts to this story, a lot of dysfunction. But Leah is the one person in the story that we see some level of character change because if you continue on the story, Leah conceives again. She has a fourth son. And then she says this, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So she calls, she says, I'm going to praise the Lord. And the, 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 the word for Lord here is not the general term for God, Elohim, it's the word Yahweh, which is the personal name that God gave to his people. The personal name of God. The only way Leah could have known about Yahweh was if Jacob had told her about the promise that God gave to his grandfather. And so she was reaching out to this gracious God, this personal God that reached out to Abraham. And she's saying, I am going to praise and give my worship to this God. And Judah, to fast forward way down the line, would be the one through whom the family seed would move through all the way to the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And so it's in our praise, it's in our worship, it's in our actually posture of shifting our worship towards other people and other things and putting God in the center of our lives that God tends to redeem our stories. When we turn our praise and worship towards a personal God, he redeems and restores our lives and our stories. Again, to go back to C.S. Lewis, you know, as you know if you've been around, I love C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. Think about that for one second. I'll give you a minute. Put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Now, he talks about this idea of first and second things in multiple places and essays and books. Uh, in one book, he, he says this. Let me just read it for you. He says, the longer I looked into this concept, the more I realized I was seeing a universal principle. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only 
pleasurable levels of intoxication. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her, but clear the decks and so arrange your life as it sometimes is able to happen that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and have her. What happens? Of course, this law has been discovered many, many times, but it's worth rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great good or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting second things first. You can get second things by only putting first things first. So again, C.S. Lewis in summary says, put first things first, then we get the second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things, which would lead us to the question of second to what? What's the first thing? C.S. Lewis says, the only reply I can offer here is that if we do not know, then the first and only truly practical thing is to set about finding out what that first thing is. And of course, C.S. Lewis argues, and the Bible leads us to this point of saying, the first thing, what you were created for is the worship of God. You were created to worship God. You were created to find your identity, your belonging, your significance, your meaning in God and God alone. And it's actually only when that happens, it's only when that happens that we are able to be a spouse, a parent, a friend, a father, a mother, in a way that we don't, idol, we don't idolize the other person. We don't idolize our kids. We don't idolize our spouse. We don't look at our parents to be God for us. We actually put people in their proper place and we can experience hope, longing, meaning identity that is not dependent on another person. Because as long as we put our dependency and our meaning and our hope on somebody else, whether it's a friend, whether it's a parent, whether it's a spouse, whether it's your kids, we will find in the morning, behold, it's always Leah. So when you have that moment in the morning, maybe you've chased that thing or that person Maybe you've been longing for the kids. Maybe you have the kids. Maybe you've been longing for a spouse. Maybe you don't have a spouse. And maybe you're thinking, when I get the spouse, and maybe you got the spouse. At some point, we'll always come to the end of our longings. We'll come to this experience in the morning. And what do we do? What do we do when we realize that the thing that we've been waiting and longing for isn't going to complete us? Well, I think you got four options. These are the four. This comes from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, these are your four options. So if you don't like them, blame Tim Keller. Uh, he says, blame that or them. So maybe it's that person. Maybe those kids you wanted are rotten. Maybe that spouse you were waiting for, she didn't turn out to be quite what you wanted, and it's her fault. I've got to get a better one. I've got to get a better woman, better man. Maybe it was your job. I got to get a better job. It's their fault. That's, you, could, you could go to that option. I, you know, I'm going to argue that you're going to find the same thing in the next place you go. Uh, number two, you can blame yourself. You can beat yourself up and say, I've somehow been a failure. Everyone else seems happy except for me. There's something wrong with me. This is easy to do in a world of Instagram where we live on comparing each other to one another. 
You could blame yourself. You could do that. You could blame the world or you could blame God. The problem is with the world. The problem is with this institution. The problem is with the female population. The male population. You could blame God. God, where are you? I went to church my whole life. I tried to do the right thing. You could blame, on a very massive scale, the world. You could blame God. Or, here's a fourth option, you could blame your theory of reality. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you can reorient the entire focus of your life towards God. C.S. Lewis concluded in that same essay, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What he's saying is, if I keep looking for Rachel, and when I find Rachel, it's always Leah, and every single time it's always Leah, he says, the most probable explanation is that there's no Rachel in this world and that you were actually created for something else and someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. That someone else is a personal relationship with the living God who never intended for us to find our sense of meaning, longing, identity with another person, no matter how great that other person might be. And so here's your four options. You could blame that or them, and this is actually just going to make you a fool because you'll realize uh, you're going to be the perpetual victim and you're going to live your life, and you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to be disappointed. You could blame yourself, which turns you into a self-hater. And uh, yeah, it's just, that's not a good idea. Uh, let's go to option three. You can blame the world. And you've met people like this. They're hard. They're resentful. They're cynical. You know, they don't believe anything good can come from anything. Or you could blame your theory of reality. And this option is actually the option that Jesus brings us to. And he says, lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. Give up everything that you're longing and hoping for. Not that you won't ever have them, but it's just that you're never going to enjoy them if you don't put first things first. And so when we look at the family, this chosen family, and we could keep going. Jacob's missing piece that he thought was going to complete him was his father's love, Isaac's love. Leah's missing piece was Jacob's affection, and so she manipulated and used her kids to try and get Jacob's affection and never work. But Rachel, we haven't even talked about Rachel yet, she grew in resentment towards Leah because Leah had kids and Rachel didn't. Rachel would later have kids, as you'll see, you see there. But while Leah was, all this was happening, Leah, Leah was having kids and Rachel wasn't, and she resented her sister. She resented her slave uh, girl, uh, which is a whole other story. Um, and so she started actually projecting her longing and happiness on her future kids that she didn't have. And so we see this circle. Jacob's longing for Rachel. Rachel's longing for kids. Leah's longing for Jacob. Leah's getting kids to get Jacob's affection. Rachel doesn't have kids, and she's growing in resentment and bitterness, and on and on it goes. If you go down the family line, uh, Leah's kids are so resentful of Rachel's kids that Leah's kids sell Rachel's kid Joseph into slavery. That's the next story. So now the parents are projecting all of their issues onto their own kids. It keeps going. Now, this may sound very strange, but we ha- what we have right here is idolatry on full display. When you put your hope in something, 
and someone else to be valued, to be loved, you're always going to be disappointed. Jacob says, if I get this gorgeous wife on my arm, it didn't work. He was disappointed. You know, we have this idea of a white picket fence, you know, this, this future w- world that we all think this is the, you know, we're going to fully gr- arrive if I have a family, if I have a spouse, if my life looks like this, only to realize that that is not the thing either that's going to fulfill you. The Bible even comes against that. We think the Bible is only against all these really, really bad things that you shouldn't do, against immorality, adultery, all that stuff. Yes, it's true. The Bible is also against very, very good things if they become ultimate things. If you build your life on a spouse, at the very best, you'll be emotionally dependent or controlling. You'll be judgmental. If anything goes wrong with the spouse or if that spouse has any problems, you're going to go to pieces and you'll be of no help to that spouse or anybody else. And you might even just go on to the next person and think, I got to find another spouse. If you build your life on your kids, at the very least, you'll try to live out your life through your kids and you're going to project the things that you wanted for yourself onto them. And if they don't turn out that way, you're going to maybe even hate them or try and control them. Or at the, at the very least, again, they might not have an identity of their own because they're trying to live out your life for them. And if they love you, they're only loving you because they have to love you. And how long is that going to last? You don't complete me. The human experience is the experience of longing of desire. This has been true for all of history. We tend not to learn from history (laughs) because we all do the same thing. We do it to one another. And we could go on through life perpetually being disappointed, dissatisfied, having longings that nobody else can ever quite live up to. Or we can rethink our theory of reality and recognize that God did create me with a longing, a desire, a need to belong and have identity but it's not going to be found here. It's actually only found in a relationship with him. A spouse can be a great gift, but they're a terrible God. Your kids can be a great gift, but they're a terrible God. The pressure of making them God will crush them and it will crush you. Put first things first. Let's stand together. Jesus, we thank you that we are your bridegroom. That's what the Bible says. That you had your affection and your eyes set on us. Lord, we thank you in a really ironic way for all of the disappointments in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be able to step back and see these disappointments, that we would be able to step back and see how we tend to idolize other people and And those things are only intended to wake us up, to give us that morning experience where we can behold and see what's happening. And Lord, may we have the wisdom to actually turn our affection towards you. Lord, we choose to place our identity in you, that we are sons and daughters of God. Lord, like like David said in Psalm 23, you are our shepherd and we have no lack. There is nothing that we don't have that is keeping us from experiencing a deep sense of identity, belonging, and meaning in our lives. But we pray against the lie that says, we just need that one more piece. We just need that one more piece and then it's all going to come together for us. Lord, that's a lie from the pit of hell and we reject it. Lord, we thank you for the good things in our lives. We thank you for people, for friends, for parents, for kids, for spouses. But Lord, we thank you that they are only secondary things. May we live life 
with that perspective and put you first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things. All of your meaning, your identity, your purpose, your longings will be added to you. In Jesus' name we pray. How many of you guys come from a dysfunctional family? All right, those are more hands. There we go. Um, I want to invite you to close your eyes just for a minute as we close. And picture yourself in your own family tree. I mean, you're here this morning. You're someone's son. You're someone's daughter. Your parents weren't perfect. Perhaps you have a sibling. Perhaps you're married, or perhaps you're here this morning and you're longing to be married. Perhaps you have children. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're longing to have children. May we realize, as we keep those things in mind, that the same same temptation, whether you have it or you don't have it, whether you think your family was super dysfunctional or not, we have the same temptation, every single one of us, And that's to put our hopes and our dreams and our purpose and our belonging somewhere else other than God. Maybe take a moment here with our eyes closed and think about your own situation and ask the Lord, is there anywhere that I'm placing my hope, my significance, my belonging other than you? If I don't have that or if that doesn't get fixed, I don't know who I am. need to know this morning that those longings there's nothing wrong about those longings the Lord gave you those longings in fact in the story of Jacob we see many times that it says that God saw God saw Leah and he sees us but it's not ultimately those longings that give us what we're looking for so Lord we uh, we just come to you with these disappointments. We come to you in our own brokenness. Uh, Lord, we come to you in light of the families we grew up in, as imperfect as they were. No, we come to you in our singlehood. We come to you in our marriage. We come to you in our childlessness. We come to you with our children. Lord, may we not worship anyone. May we not worship the desire of anyone. Lord, we thank you that you know us in those longings. We thank you that you see us. We thank you that those things aren't a surprise to us. But may we experience the full life that you have for us, not through those things, but even if we don't have those things. Lord, may we worship you first and foremost so that we can function better as parents, as spouses, as children, when we put first things first. In Jesus' name, amen. There's uh, prayer teams available at the front. We'd love to pray for you for anything that the Lord might be stirring up in your lives and your hearts. Uh, Remember, there's a starting point. uh, Week one, know God during the second service in the staff lounge. You're welcome to join us for that. Uh, Have a great week. We'll see you next week.
Thank you.